As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Soccer Show. This is your weekend review where we discuss the major talking points from all the weekend's action across the Atlantic. I'm Jack Collins and I'll be your host. And joining me is the Athletic's very own Jay Harris. Jay, it's a bank holiday weekend in the UK. The sun's shining. It's been a whole lot of fun both on and off the pitch. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I obviously went to the Brentford game on Saturday afternoon. They came back yet again, got a one-all draw with a, with a last-minute goal. And then I was at Notting Hill Carnival yesterday. So, yeah, there's a lot of fun going around for sure. It feels like a, a nice weekend for it and a, and a good weekend of football as well. We're going to talk about Manchester City's impressive comeback and very interesting turn of events at the top of Serie A. But, Jay, I think we have to start at Anfield, where Liverpool exploded into life with a record equaling 9-0 win over Bournemouth this weekend. There was always going to be a point where Liverpool side, well, this Liverpool side awoke, I suppose, in, in so many ways, in terms of this <laughs> season. But to do it in such emphatic fashion after the start they've had was quite special, I thought. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a great victory, but we do need to remember that, you know, Liverpool should be beating someone like Bournemouth. And there was always going to be a bit of a natural reaction after the, the kind of, maybe not a shock defeat, but um, it was a li- kind, of, kind of came a little bit out of the blue that they lost to Manchester United. But um, so this game was going on at the same time I was down at, at Brentford v Everton. And sometimes this happens in the press box where you've got a really crazy game going on somewhere else and all the journalists kind of give each other little updates. So first off, it was 1-0 it was after one, one minute. I'm like, oh, you know, Liverpool have awoken, like you said. Then it's, oh, it's 2-0. And then you'd get someone else saying, oh, I think, I think it's three now, four or five. It was just going up and up and up and up and up. And then people were like, Right, Salah got on the score sheet yet because I've captained him in FBL. What's <laughs> what's going on? What's going on? But I mean, yes, there are you know some issues with, with, with Liverpool at the moment, and I'm sure we'll come on to that. But to to score nine goals against any team is obviously a great achievement. But I think it's just the variety of who scored, which is probably the most promising sign if you're looking at it from a Liverpool perspective. For you know, for Harvey Elliott to score, Fabio Carvalho to score, Firmino to score. I think that's really really massive for them over the course of the season that they can you know. Maybe it won't be one person directly replacing all of the goals Mane got, especially as Nunes kind of acclimatises over time. But to see that other people can chip in when needed, that's going to be massive. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, we'll, we'll come on to the Salah point and I'm sure there's a lot of <laughs> FPL managers that are very unhappy with, with how that one played out. But uh, I think you look at the game against Manchester United and actually what re- Liverpool really lacked was, was any sort of consistency in midfield. Fabinho came back in here, you know, clearly fully fit again now and there were clearly some sort of, it, it, there was clearly some sort of issue there with his fitness for that game where you'd imagine he would have started. He is a key cog in this Liverpool side. But the difference he makes in just allowing this team to tick. Now, obviously, the calibre of opposition is different. We're not comparing Manchester United at Old Trafford to, you know, playing Bournemouth at home. But equally, you could just see how much more comfortable this side feels when there is Fabinho at the base of it. He is the heartbeat in so many ways of this midfield. Yeah, I honestly think Fabinho is one of the most, you know, probably one of the maybe top 10, top 15 players in the Premier League. I think he flies under the radar a little bit, um, as you kind of alluded to. He just kind of, you know, sits back, 
you know, makes those key interceptions, you know, makes those recoveries and just allows, you know, the rest of Liverpool's more attacking talent, shall we say, uh, to just thrive and go ahead. If you've got someone like Thiago who, you know, can can pick teams apart with his passing, you need someone yeah. to perfectly complement that. And if you've got the, the likes of Carvalho and Elliot in your midfield, you want to bomb forward and make runs, you need someone to complement that. And Fabinho just, you know, ticks all the boxes. I honestly think he's, you know, pretty much the perfect defensive midfielder. I think he's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Harvey Elliott was clearly allowed to get forward, join this attacking, you know, trio and, and, and thrive in those areas. And he scores a wonderful goal. Um, but Bobby Firmino here, obviously, I don't want to use the word vilified because he's never been vilified. That's, that's not the point. But mm. I think maybe sidelined a little bit by some fans as as Liverpool kind of moved into this new era w- without Sadio Mane, with, with Luis Diaz coming through last season, then Darwin coming in this season. There were questions, I suppose, over where Bobby Firmino's role in this Liverpool side was. He answered those emphatically. Now, in the Manchester United game, he spent a lot of time in midfield trying to find build-up play because there was no one behind him being able to go, you know, ghost into those areas and, and make sure that the, there was that link up between the front line and the midfield but here he obviously picks up two and two assists and a goal within the first 10 minutes and he just looked every inch the player that we've seen over the last couple of years again yeah and you know it's I get what you're trying to say about some people kind of maybe not vilifying him but kind of thinking oh you know we've left Firmino behind now we've got Nunes we've got Diaz this is this new look Liverpool attacking lineup and is there a place for, for for Firmino there anymore but when you're, you know, a player of his quality, he's won the champ, won the Champions League, won the Premier League. To just have that as an option off the bench or starting games as a rotation, that's fantastic. So you should never count somebody like that out. And he, you know, he kind of proved it. Okay, he didn't have the greatest game again on Monday against Manchester United, but no one really did in the Liverpool shirt. So Firmino's showing that he's gonna still be very useful to his Liverpool team over the rest of the year. Yeah, it also gives Jurgen Klopp rotations, right? It gives him different options. And in a game like this, where Liverpool were able to pull this Bournemouth side left, right and centre uh, through the whole through the whole game, really, you know, having a player who's so intelligent to drop in and make those runs and, and, and take drag defenders away from other players it is a real gift. Now, the Man United game was a little bit more cut and thrust. It was a little bit more of a basketball game. It was up and down and up and down. And, and therefore, sometimes, you know, a player like Darwin in that situation would have been useful yeah. because he would have given you that ability to stretch Manchester United and play behind them rather than in front of them um, but this game felt like it was perfect for, for Firmino to come in and and kind of make his mark again and especially after after Monday night I think it was just a, a reminder of his quality you mentioned it at the top about, about Mo Salah and I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of FPL managers out here going oh, why have I captained him I read a thing here that it was uh, on Twitter that if you kind of added up the different odds from things, the the idea of Mo Salah not getting an attacking contribution in a 9-0 win is over 2 million to 1. Um, and I think that it just really <laughs> did make me laugh in terms of, it's just one of those things you can't, you can't script that. that that's unfortunate. It, it's just one of those things. I think it's exacerbated by the fact that, you know, over at City, Erling Haaland gets so many points. Luis mm. Diaz on the other wing gets so many points. But uh, there'll be plenty of people who are looking at this going, I just don't understand how this has possibly happened. Fair, fair play to whoever did that calculation, by the way. Yeah. I feel, feel like they've got way too much time in their hands, but I fully appreciate it because that's that's fascinating. And, you know, yes, selfishly, people who had Salah as their FBL captain, I certainly did, might be a little bit annoyed that, you know, he didn't get on the score sheet. And obviously, I think he's just scored once so far this season, hasn't he? Or has he scored yeah, two? Just, just once. Obviously, no, he scored had... against Fulham. He scored against Fulham and then against Manchester United. So, yeah, twice, sorry. So... By his standard, some people might say that's a slow start, but two and four games is still is still very good numbers. Obviously, had a slow start to the end of last season, so you can kind of see some people saying, "Oh, you know, Salah's not scored in a nine 0 win. What's going on?" But as I mentioned earlier, from a Liverpool perspective, Jurgen Klopp's probably thinking, "My team just scored nine goals and Salah wasn't one of them." That just shows the that the, the goal scoring load's going to be spread this Variation, year. That, right, exactly, yeah. he's probably rubbing his hands with glee. And he's probably also told Salah in the dressing room afterwards, like, you know, come on, what's yeah, <laughs> that's your sign to, to get out and get firing because someone else will take the limelight. So I think it's a great position to be in for if you're looking at it from a Liverpool perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And and lovely goals from, from Harvey Elliott and, and Fabio Carvalho, as you mentioned at the top. Great. You know, just really, really nice and, and good to see the youngsters from Oxford Park uh, shining on the big stage. Uh, <laughs> it's just a shame they're not wearing white shirts anymore, from, from, from my perspective, at the very least. Um, look, a couple of things, and, and we'll move on from Liverpool shortly. But there were there were questions, I suppose, over where 
the next bits and bobs came from in terms of midfield. And, and this kind of recurring question that's sitting over Liverpool is, do they need to add another midfielder to this mix before the other transfer window? Now, on one side, you can completely see why they would want another body in here, considering the injury record that Naby Keita and Thiago have. On the flip side, next month, Curtis Jones will be back. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain will be back, you know, for better or for worse, I think, from, from a Liverpool fan perspective. And, and then Thiago will be back and, and Keita will be back shortly after that. And then if you have another body in here, are you overstacked or is it better to have those depth options? Well, firstly, I think to, to rely on Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain to give you backup over the course of a season just, just isn't a wise option. You know, his, his injury record throughout his career is never been particularly good. So I almost feel like I'm kind of surprised he didn't leave Liverpool this summer, if, if I'm honest. But I do understand why Liverpool fans certainly feel like they need an extra body in midfield because it all just stems down to Thiago. I honestly think Thiago is one of the the best passers in the game right now. He is phenomenal to watch. The little t- touches he makes, those, those cheeky little reverse passes that he always pulls off. He's so unique. And that's kind of Liverpool's problem. You know, they kind of... Sh- burden him with a lot of the creative playmaking responsibilities in midfield, um, which means when he's taken out, you can suddenly see their, their play be quite, maybe not slow, but it just won't have the same kind of fluidity and vibrancy to it. But then if you're Liverpool and you're looking at a player who's like Thiago, you're not going to, you're not gonna, that person doesn't exist, that Thiago, yeah. Thiago's Thiago. So I do get that if you kind of compare Thiago to the rest of Liverpool's midfield options, he very, very clearly stands out as the one who's the most creative. And I just feel like they need to somehow, going forward long term, look at what they kind of do when he's injured because he just can't be relied upon to, to you know, to get through 30, 38 games in a Premier League season. If you're in Liverpool and you're in charge of the transfer business, would you bring in, would you be bringing in another body? Or do you think this is one of those that, you know, we've seen Chelsea have issues in central midfield. We've seen injury crises strike at Liverpool before. Um, or is it one where you're like, and then Jurgen Klopp's made this point, I, I don't know what I'll do if everyone's then back fit. Um, and it's a really difficult balance to strike. It's a tightrope that they're walking in so many ways. I mean, I don't think if I'm Liverpool, I don't think I buy a player now. I think that moment's probably passed. If you, you know, Liverpool want, you know, a quality addition who can kind of provide competition and something a little bit different. And I don't think the calibre of player they're hunting for is going to be available in the final three, four days of the window. I could be wrong. But like I said, those midfield options are never fully fit for Liverpool. That's the problem. Thiago will have a knock and then Naby Keita will have a knock and then Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain will have a knock. I'd be I'd be amazed to see. If anyone listening can find out how often Klopp's had like a fully fit midfield available, please let us know because I, I bet it rarely ever happens. To be honest, it probably ne- never, it probably rarely happens at most clubs. You know, someone's yeah. always carrying a knock of some sort. But when you've got so many key players in one position constantly coming in and out of the side... I definitely understand why some Liverpool fans feel like they should have, should have got a body in. So if I, if I was Liverpool's transfer team at the beginning of the window, then yes, it's definitely something I would have looked at. But, you know, I'm not. <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. Um, and just a word on, on Bournemouth and Scott Parker. Obviously, uh, an incredibly difficult afternoon uh, for the Cherries. But there were some comments from Scott Parker afterwards where he was asked, you know, does this shine a light on, on the team? He said, no, this is kind of where I expected we were. And then also asked if it would be the lowest moment of the system. And he said, at this moment in time where we currently are, I can see some more, to be honest with you. That's not easy listening, I'd imagine, if you're a Cherries fan. And, you know, it's gone back to that immediate point, especially with, with Forrest and, and Fulham starting relatively well in comparison. It does feel a little bit like Scott Parker is writing Bournemouth off as, as relegation candidates. Now, whether he's trying to create a siege mentality, you know, is up for debate and, and what he's trying to do with his own players. But it's not comforting, I imagine, if you, if you support Bournemouth. I'd say it's probably not comforting if you're, you're a Bournemouth player, but then that is quite potentially the way kind of Scott Parker manages and coaches that team. He might be quite like direct and honest and and there's a lot of value to be held from that. Yeah. I don't want to judge him too much on those comments. They certainly, if I was a Bournemouth fan listening to them, would certainly make me feel a little bit worried. You know, you kind of much, much rather prefer him to come out and say, look, these things happen. You know, Liverpool are a team of real, real quality. I and mean, we made a few mistakes, which kind of, you know, exacerbated the scoreline. Mm-hmm. But the obvious comparison is what Ten Hag did with Man United after they lost to Brentford, where he got them in and did the training on a Sunday. And there were so many comments about that, myself included, thinking, you know, is that going to backfire? Have, you know, almost made it to be a bigger thing than it was. 
when then Man United ran out and you know beat Liverpool two one. So I think we can't really judge the effect of Scott Parker's comments until we see what Bournemouth do in their next couple of games. Because if in three four weeks you know they've not picked up another win or it look like they're struggling performances a little bit, you can guarantee someone will kind of look back at those post match comments and say didn't really create the best atmosphere in the mood around the place, did it? Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's it's a tricky one, obviously for him, but it equally. It just it just felt like a real okay we're coming bottom comment and now maybe mm. he's trying to force the board into making signings maybe he's looking at going right we need this this squad isn't strong enough we need additions before deadline day obviously this week is is going to see how that plans out but it did make me shudder a little bit I was like oh mm. I don't don't like that very much that that makes me feel very uncomfortable and look a lot of people are writing Bournemouth off as as kind of bottom of the table already and especially given the fact that you know the teams at the bottom of the in the bottom of the pile are sides that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be in there it doesn't it doesn't make pretty reading I imagine for Cherry's fans but uh we'll see how they respond to those comments um with that I think we should move on a little bit maybe over well what was well, what we did think was the title rivalry um to Manchester City it might well <laughs> it might well still be let's let's be honest um, but City uh, starting to get a taste for comeback results. 2-0 down against their bogey side in many ways, Crystal Palace, I think. They, they go on a win 4-2. One, just how impressive was Erling Haaland, who obviously gets the hat-trick to take this from 2-1 down to 4-2 up. But two, I suppose, City now have come back from two goals down against Newcastle to draw, two goals down against Crystal Palace to win 4-2. They came back at the end of last season, obviously in the Villa game, um, and in the West Ham game before this, there's a bit of a shift of kind of pace at City. And and this mentality that's growing within this side is is probably setting them in, in relatively good stead, not just in the Premier League, but also in Europe. I was going to say it would have been interesting to see if they could have come from, from 3-0 down against Crystal Palace. But we won't go into that controversial disallowed goal, goal just yet. No, it is a little bit strange to kind of see a, a team of Man City's calibre going down seemingly every other week at the moment. But what I would say is that they've just got such superior quality that when I saw they were 2-0 down against Crystal Palace, not a single part of me thought that game's done. And I'm sure everybody else who was kind of saw that scoreline thought the exact same thing. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, you know, Michael Cox wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago about how Bayern Munich should start a goal down in every Bundesliga game because they dominate it that much and it gives other team a fighting chance. And almost was that Man City of, you know, maybe taken inspiration from Michael Cox's article and said, Do you know what, we fancy giving that a try because they just make it look so easy. You know, when 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 they're in a little bit of trouble, they hit the Erling Haaland button, he scores a hat-trick, and, you know, they get three points. It's it's ridiculous. But Haaland was, was absolutely fantastic. I think I've said it before that I knew he'd have, have a great season. I thought maybe there'd be a small betting-in period, not a massive one, but I thought it'd maybe take him a little bit of time to adjust to, a, to you know, a different, different city, different team, all those kind of things. But when you're just a striker with that elite level movement, you're always going to score goals. And it's funny because sometimes the most impressive stuff, especially for his second goal, are just like the tiny steps backwards he makes. And then all of a sudden he's free at the back post. And so it's tiny details that are sometimes the most impressive. Um, He's just a phenomenal, phenomenal goal scorer. Yeah, he, he, he's ludicrous, frankly, in terms of just the way that he can score. Great way of putting it. You know, pretty much anywhere in this box. You're like, oh, if he's got the ball, then the chances are it might well end up in the back of the net. Um, there are some some moments in this. There's there's a high foot where he's, wow, it's a questionable decision to, to not look at it at the very least. Um, now, we don't know the ins and outs of whether VAR took a, took a deeper look and it wasn't broadcast, but... It wasn't something that was massively highlighted. And uh, and we saw the Crystal Palace chairman come out and say there was a, a couple of decisions that didn't go their way. Um, and we'll come on to them, I think. But, but kind of before that, you, you look at Haaland and you think, OK, how are, how are City going to develop this season with an out-and-out number nine? Because it's not something we've seen for a little while, right, with Manchester mm-hmm. City. And, and Pep loved playing his, his, his kind of false nines in, in inverted commas in some ways last season in, in those roles. But... You come in with a play like this and suddenly City are able to score in just so many different ways. And 
the the way that they work the ball for that second haul and goal, um, where it's in the box and they're looking for the spare man, you know, it, it's it's bouncing around in there. Anyone could hit it. You know, any other side, I think, in the Premier League <laughs> looks to volley it. You know, the, the ball's bouncing around. Someone's just going to strike a goal and hope for, you know, that it goes through, goes through a po- couple of bodies and, and hits the back of the net. Instead, Alvarez le- releases Bernardo, who pulls back, goes to, the, goes to the byline and sticks it across. And of course, Haaland is there. So he scores... A goal where he's kind of bundling into the box. He scores a tap-in at the back post and he scores one where he muscles someone through and tucks it away for the hat-trick. It's three completely different goals and a, yeah. and a real kind of recognition of, of, of what his skill set and, and why his skill set is so complete. Six goals in four Premier League games. I mean, it's early to say that it's in terms of rotation and fitness, etc. But we could be on for records here. Yeah, definitely. And it's kind of interesting what you what you you know, the point you made about how Pep loved his false nine and people doing different things. The thing is, the rest of their forward options and their midfield options are slow flexible. They can still do that regardless. You know, you can't really pin Bernardo Silva to one particular position. Same with yeah. people like Phil Foden and Riyad Mahrez. So if you're a defence and you know you're in for a really tough time against Haaland anyways, and then you've got all the players around him switching positions, going in different directions, it must be like an absolute nightmare. But like you said, Haaland... All of those goals show a different instinct. I think the third goal where, you know, the strength to hold off the player and the kind of speed to even get in, into that position, that's what kind of terrifies me when he scores those goals. I think it was similar to the one he got against Newcastle. Yeah, it's just, like, there, right? it's just like, you know what he's going to do and you're like powerless to, to prevent it from happening. It's just, it's just absolutely ridiculous. It's, I, I never want to come out and say, oh, we're going to break records. But I mean, six in four games, like new league, new team, that's like absolutely ridiculous. It's terrifying numbers, isn't it? For it is everybody ter- else it, it in the is, Premier League. It is terrifying numbers. And maybe look, maybe that's the key to City finally getting over the line in, in Europe, where, they, where they've looked to kind of kick on. Obviously, they got to the final two years ago in the Champions League. It, it's the one that I think, if, if you know, the fan base are, are very happy with, with domestic success, and you can understand that given you know where the club has come from and having to watch their next door neighbours win time and time again, and, mm. and, and sort of sitting in the shadow of it now. So turning it around domestically, I think is enough for a lot of City fans that you know they're very happy happy to, to win domestically but it does feel like the Champions League is sitting there as, as a kind of final hurdle and Erling Haaland feels in this kind of form like the kind of player who can make the difference in, in, in those games and, and get City over that hurdle so it's going to be very interesting to see how that develops you know across the European season as well. When we go back to these Palace points though because there will be Palace fans here aggrieved at how this one played out. Firstly a third goal ruled out for a block on, on Edison as he's trying to distribute the ball. And then secondly, a high foot from Haaland before he scores that first goal, which could be a red card, Jay, I think. It, 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 wouldn't, it wouldn't have been particularly surprising if it had been. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll start with the red card um, because it reminds me of something similar that happened four or five years ago in a game that involved Manchester City when um, Sadio Mane kind of kicked Edison in the face when he was, you know, he was looking at the ball, didn't once look at Edison, you know, um, happened completely by accident. But he got, shown a straight, he got shown a straight red card and it completely changed the complex of that game. And, you know, Manchester City absolutely tore, tore Liverpool apart. Nobody wants to see players get sent off for, for accidents. But the fact is, it's, it's, it's dangerous. You know, sometimes you can almost overanalyze these things but at the end of the day, his foot is ridiculously high and he's caught Joachim Anderson in the face. So to not get penalised in some way, shape or form, you completely can, you can completely you know, sympathise with, with Crystal Palace fans who are a little bit infuriated by it. And the, the, the situation with Edison, I would just be infuriated if I was a Crystal Palace fan. Um, I just think it's ridiculous that that's been chalked off. It's, it, it's so clearly not been blocked. It's, it's an error from Edison, how he's got away with that. You know, he needs to be, uh, you know, <laughs> singing the referee's praises. I'm sure, sure he gave him like a little hug at the end of the game saying, thank yeah, you, yeah. You, bailed, you, you, you bailed me out there. Um, and that's kind of the the thing that irritates me with, with VAR and, and, and refereeing sometimes. It's just that sometimes it feels like the most obvious decisions are the ones that go wrong. Um, I'd understand if there was a really complicated decision and causing a little bit of controversy. But when it's something as obvious as that, you can't help but think, well, what's kind of VAR being used for sometimes if, if people aren't really check, checking these things properly. 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But uh, for now, it feels like City marching onwards in, in in every possible fashion. Really, they they just look like a very very well oiled unit. You know, Bernardo drops out to the right hand side. Phil Foden played left back in the second half. It's like oh, Pep's playing a different game, I think, in some ways to the rest <laughs> of us. He's uh, he's looking at things. Ah, oh, yeah, Phil can just sit in there and and we can attack from deep and we can make make things happen. And I suppose obviously with, with Zinchenko playing there for a lot last season, it makes sense to have a player who can play centre into those roles but equally it was um, one that surprised me a little bit um, but it worked and uh, and that's why Pep's and they're genius and, uh, and I'm exactly. not um, but we're uh, we, we'll <laughs> don't, be so, don't, don't be so hard on yourself oh yeah exactly to be fair if you compare yourself to Pep I think that you're, in a, you're in a good spot to begin with um, <laughs> looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24-7 US based live customer service from Discover Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. But anyway, we move on and we will go to Italy. Where I suppose the kind of headline result, the shock result is Lazio beating Inter 3-1 on Friday night. Um, but I think maybe the discussion off the back of it is, is, we'll talk very briefly about that game, is also how the title race looks in Italy and how Serie A might well turn out to be. And look, I would say it was the best title race of last season. The three teams in it right you know, to the last three weeks and then the two teams to the final day. But I think this looks like it could be one of the most entertaining seasons ever uh, in Serie A, the way that the way that everyone's playing. And I think the way that there's no standout candidate from maybe five or six teams to go on and win the title, because before the season started, you would have said it was Inter. They go one nil down and it's a wonderful, wonderful goal. This uh, Sergei Milinkovic-Savic with a, with a beautiful ball in. Felipe Anderson puts it away. Um, but Inter equalise early in the second half and kind of from there away at Lazio, who have been good but not brilliant and, and have struggled in some ways against, against the bigger sides over the course of the last year. You know, you kind of expect Inter to take the game by the scruff of the neck there and, and kick on with it, but they don't. They lose the game 3-1. There's a brilliant goal from Luis Alberto, um, an absolute wonder strike, to be perfectly honest with you. But it's kind of one of those results that feels like not a shift of power because I don't think it's, it's that yeah. extreme, but it does feel like every side here is fallible. And, and I think you go on and you go, okay, Roma and Juve played out a, a really entertaining 1-1 draw. And Vlavic scored a brilliant free kick. But then Mourinho outmaneuvers Allegri in the second half, gets Roma back into this game. Napoli draw at Fiorentina, another good game. Another, you know, and two unbeaten sides. There's no, no shame in going to the Frankie and not, not picking up all three points. But La- Napoli have been in such great form. And Milan won but against Bologna. Um just feels for me and you know Atalanta have started the season as well there's five six maybe seven teams here who are going to be in this conversation till at least sort of Christmas time and I think that's mad and incredibly entertaining and you know last week we talked about the Bundesliga right and we talked about the fact that whether having you know a dominance in the league is is a good or a bad thing for for trying to attract new fans and you look at Serie A, which had such dominance from Juventus for, for such a long time. Obviously, they won nine in a row. And now you look at it and this kind of open playing field, it just feels so exciting in Italy at the moment. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think just on uh, the Lazio Inter game, there's a chance for Denzel Dumfries when it's one all, mm. and it's a header that he, you know, he kind of heads down into the ground. And I know they kind of always say that, that that's what you should do, but the keeper ends up, you know, making the save. And you kind of look at that and think that was the turning point. That was the moment where they were going going to accelerate and go on to win the game and kind of prove their kind of title prowess, or they were going to, you know, you know, not not get away with a win, not get away with the points or whatever. But I just think if you're an interside that's got ambitions of obviously regaining the title that you lost to your, your arch rivals last season, then these are the kind of games where if you cannot win, get out with a point. Away at Lazio, a team brimming with quality, like we said, Luis Alberto, Pedro, you know, former Chelsea player, had a fantastic performance as well. Yeah. If you're If you're really serious about winning the title, you can't lose those games. You cannot lose those games. And what you're saying about, you know, every team in Serie A looking fallible at the moment, that, that, that was kind of like the proof for Inter that they didn't manage to, you know, switch up their tactics and grind out the result. Obviously, we were talking before we started doing this, but at the moment, there are six teams in um, Serie A on seven points and Inter and Juventus are not two of them, which is absolutely crazy to say, but there's just so much kind of depth. And I actually, you know, this is not a plug, I promise, but I actually spoke to James Richardson for the Athletic last week, obviously the guru when it comes to Italian football yes, and he was and he was kind of talking about the enduring appeal of Serie A and he said I really do think it's kind of the only league in you know only the only one of the top five European leagues at the moment that's got a seriously you know varied and, and completely different kind of title race because even in, in in the Premier League he was saying Manchester City and Liverpool in the last few years have kind of turned it into a bit of a duopoly whereas in Italy at the moment as we kind of said Roma looked decent Juve look you know, Juve are always going to be a threat into AC Milan. It's so difficult to predict who's going to come out on top. And that's that's such a good sign. And it's so good to see because it makes people more invested in that league. That's what we said last week about Bayern Munich. If you just see a team constantly cruising to that league, it makes, you know, the casual reader, the casual fan, sorry, less interested. Whereas if you've got that much excitement in Serie A, people, people are just going to flock and watch it. Yeah, I think this is it. And, you know, not it had the reputation, obviously, in, in the kind of 90s of, of being this very defensively astute league. I don't think it's completely gone. Um, but I do think that there is, there's far more excitement to be had. And, and you look at the squads of, of these sides as well. And I think this is maybe the really interesting thing. You look at the squads of Napoli, Milan, uh, Roma, Inter, Juve, a minimum. And then you probably add Lazio into that. You can chuck Atalanta and even Fiorentina now into this mix kind of a little bit further down. I don't think Lazio and Fiorentina and Atalanta are going to be in a title race, but I do think they're going to be in the mix for European football. And it means that you're looking at this kind of eight eight teams here in, in, in this kind of area and going... OK, who comes out on top here? Because there's a lot going on um, and, and there's a lot lot to enjoy. And, and I think when you when you have these squads, especially of those kind of top five, six, and they're all brimming, as you say, with depth, with quality, um, but none of them are perfect. None of them feel completely and utterly dominant. You're looking at a thing going, OK, fine. And look, I was worried about Napoli four weeks ago. And in the four weeks since, they've brought in you know the likes of Raspadori, Simeone, Tsonga and Dombele. And you're going, okay, hang on, that's now a squad that can compete with the Scudetto. You know, maybe, yeah. they're, maybe they're a keeper short. If Napoli bring in Kaylor Navas, as they've been rumoured to have been doing, suddenly you've got, that's a, that's a Scudetto title, you know, challenging team. Now, obviously they came third last year and they were in the hunt until about a month out, as I said at the kind of start. But it felt like Napoli had that kind of enduring heartbreak that just Napoli do. Um <laughs> But, you know, a couple of additions here, and especially considering that they lost Dries Mertens, they lost uh, Lorenzo Senior. it does still look like they're about to lose Fabian Ruiz, you know, and, and Khalidou Koulibaly, who obviously went to Chelsea. That's a big, big spinal loss of, of, of players who not mm. only are, um, you know, exceptionally good footballers, but also emotionally invested within the club and, and people who the fans have got real affinity to. To have started like they have, to have brought in, the, you know, the reinforcements that they have, it just makes me feel that this, you know, Napoli are are in a much better place than I think a lot of people gave them credit for. You look at the same at Lazio. I thought some of the additions there this summer from Maurizio Sarri were, were excellent. Um, and Marcus Antonio, for example, from, from Shakhtar Donetsk, who came in and a lovely ball playing six. And you're like, oh, Sarri will like that man. And basically <laughs> we're like, we're going to take Hellas Verona's centre-backs because we like them. Um, they're ball playing centre-backs. Sarri will like them. And then Atalanta, who had a bad year last year, an off year, 
have started relatively nicely as well. You know, they got that point against Milan where they were they were very, very decent. They won against uh, Hellas Verona this weekend. Yes, less convincing, sure. But they brought in Adamola Lookman, you know, a couple of other uh, other kind of faces in here. And, and look, we wonder if they'll lose more players. Malinovsky been linked, obviously, with a move away, etc. But there's some really interesting things going on, I think, at, at quite a lot of these clubs. And for me, that kind of diversification of a of a title race and of a European race as well makes for things more exciting because you're looking at things and going, well, anything could happen this weekend. And as soon as one of the big eight, which you did say, are playing each other, you're like, there's a shock potentially on the cards there. And that's happening almost every weekend. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I couldn't really put it any better than that. When you've got eight teams who are constantly going at each other's throats, it just means there's going to be so many fascinating games over the course of the season. Those ones where, you know, you're kind of looking at the schedule on a, on a Sunday afternoon thinking, should I go out with my mates? Oh, hang on a second. You know, Inter are playing AC or something like that. And, that, and you're going to cancel your plans to, to watch it. So I'm, 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 me personally, I'm definitely going to check it out a little bit more this season. It's just shaping up to be such an interesting kind of title race. And then even the top four and stuff like that, as you kind of said, those top eight teams, you could throw, you know, throw those teams up in the air and they could, you know, kind of fall in any which direction come the end of the season. It would be interesting to see. Yeah, definitely. Well, one we'll be keeping an eye on, of course, uh, across the course of the season. Uh, let's go around the grounds a little bit and, and talk about a couple of the other things that were interesting this weekend. Uh, Barcelona shone as they won 4-0 over Real Valladolid. Um, a very complete performance from them, I thought. Jules Koundé made his debut, was defensively very solid. <laughs> it looks like they're starting to gel, Jay. And look, Lewandowski scores a double nutmeg back heel. There's not much more yeah. you can ask for there. I, I, I've watched the Lewandowski goal from a couple of different angles. I think it's a bit of a deflection. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it to him. I'll be honest. I'm gonna no, give it to no, him. no, 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 no. I think he's trying to play the ball backwards. When I, when I first saw it, I thought, hang on a second, how's he scored that? And I've watched it a couple of times because I even think his celebrations are a tiny bit muted. It's almost <laughs> like a, it's almost like Oops. yeah, I didn't quite mean to do that, but I, I'm gonna take the credit for it. I mean, yeah, Jules Kounde finally playing for Barcelona. I mean, their team's in a really good position. You know, I mean, they were expected to win that game anyways. Yeah, but um, I think Lewandowski kind of cracking in and scoring those goals straight away is such a good sign for them. Yeah, I think what's interesting about this is the Real Sociedad game last week, obviously they won 4-1, but it was very end-to-end, very nervy. There were lots of big mm. moments for La Real. Now, no, La Real are a better side than, than Valladolid. They are. But equally, this just felt much more calm, composed, Barcelona, it, it, you know, within themselves, looking like they they were in control of the situation, and and, and I think that with his side starting to click a little bit, when they did really well, played right back. Um, we were wondering whether he was going to play there or, or Araujo was going to play there or how that was going to pan out. Um, it looks like they're, they're starting to find their rhythm a little bit, and and I've been impressed. I think this is going to be a very interesting season, and and I still think they're probably just about with with Casemiro leaving Real Madrid, mm. probably just about favourites for this title, which is a massive thing to say considering the Real Madrid are both domestic and European champions right now. I just it's just got a funny feeling they've only ever retained the title once, so we'll see. Um, they did, though, leave it late to score a winner against Espanyol in, in a game they really struggled to dominate, I thought. Benzema came up big, which is very little shock to anyone uh, <laughs> in, in the 88th minute. And then they added another late on into added time to the points after uh, the Espanyol goalkeeper had been sent off for a handball outside the box. And Benzema just like passed the free kick through the wall into the back of the net with a centre-back standing there looking a bit bemused in goal. Um, <laughs> but it was, yeah, not not completely convincing, but they have game changes still. And, and Rodrigo, I thought, was, was very, very good when he came on in this game to, to kind of turn it around for Real Madrid. At the kind of other end of things, Sevilla lost again, this time to newly promoted Almeria. Now, Almeria gave Real Madrid a really good game a couple of weeks back, but Sevilla continued to languish at the foot of the table. This squad looks unbalanced. The fans are unhappy and Julian Lopetegui looks on borrowed time, I think, in so many ways. They were a bit unhappy with him at the end of last season that they failed to kick on and really do that title race. And now things have taken a turn for the worse. They've lost Carlos and Kunde, obviously, their first choice centre-back pairing. There isn't much money and they're looking across town at Real Betis, who continued their excellent start of the season. They won again. They're up there right at the top of the table. And before the game, there was this unbelievable violin solo on the pitch yeah, as, that the, is, uh, as the Betis that, anthem player. That is crazy. Great I've seen vibes. that video. That's crazy. Great vibes for everyone. But, well, apart from Sevilla fans who... <laughs> it just, just looks like a very unhappy camp at the moment would be my take on it. Now, obviously, if you lose that many players, Jay, 
it's going to be tricky. Um, and, and especially if you haven't got the kind of financial clout to replace them. But, you know, this was a side that were, you know, were supposed to challenge for the title last season, obviously came top four or in the Champions League, you have a Champions League games next. They play Man City and Barcelona in the next two weeks. It all just feels very uncomfortable where, where things stand for Lopetegui and Sevilla. Yeah, definitely. And I think you kind of mentioned it. The fact that they've lost Koundé and Carlos is going to be a massive factor. You take any team, if you remove their two best centre-backs from that, they're going to struggle. And especially what probably didn't help with the whole Koundé situation is that it just kind of dragged and became a little yeah. bit of a circus. Was he staying? Was he going to Chelsea? Was he going to Barcelona? It just becomes a massive distraction. And if you're a manager like Lepertugi, who, you know, kind of his stock fell a little bit towards the end of last season, yeah. you could probably make comparisons with kind of what happened to or what's happening with, with Steven Gerrard at Aston Villa. End the season, not great. It's absolutely pivotal that you start the new season with a couple of, even if you're not getting the results and good performances, and it feels like neither is happening at the moment for Sevilla. So the fact they've only got one point from the first three games and they've got those big fixtures coming up, you, you definitely worry for them a little bit, like how they're going to sort that out. Yeah, well, the fans didn't like Lepetegui's style anyway. Um, and then... <laughs> And then they were like, well, it's okay if we're winning. But as soon as they're not winning, it, it all looks a bit uncomfortable. So I, I think that there's, um, there's good money on keeping an eye on that one in terms of the sack race in Spain. Um, let's go Germany quickly. Uh, Bayern dropped points for the first time in the Bundesliga. Uh, Gladbach goalkeeper Jan Sommer provided a record-breaking number of saves to keep the Bavarians at bay in a one-all draw. But maybe there is hope for a uh, for, for a more competitive Bundesliga this season. And Gladbach's start continues to go from strength to strength. Very, very impressive from them. Um, that said, Dortmund won 1-0 against Hertha Berlin, but it was a nervy affair. And I don't think it did much to calm the fears of, of BBB fans, to be honest, because it's just one of those where they kind of ground out a win against a side who survived a relegation playoff to stay in the Bundesliga last season and got battered in their opening game. Um, not not great for, from a Dortmund perspective, but they are sort of, you know, ticking on by the three points of three points. Uh, but Union Berlin are the uh, the surprise package in uh, the Bundesliga this season. They sit joint top of the table. They won 6-1 against Schalke. But my favourite thing about this, Jay, is they actually lost on XG. They had less XG than Schalke. They won 6-1. <laughs> it's about the most clinical of displays you'll ever see. And then just data, a, a nice reminder. This is I was going to say, data football fans are losing their head over that stat. <laughs> XG's in tatters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One of those is just a reminder that the game is not played, of course, on paper. Um, Union playing really well, like really, really nicely. They're doing some good stuff. And for a club that haven't been back in the top flight for all that long, I think this is third year in a row, um, you know, and, and obviously did well and, and got into Europe and had a, had a great crack at it. Um, it just feels like that that side just continues to, to, to build whilst Hertha continue to kind of go from crisis to crisis. And the, the bigger club, if you will, in inverted commas in, in Berlin, um, much in the shadow of their smaller neighbours uh, at the moment. Um, in the Premier League, uh, Arsenal remained top after coming from behind against Fulham at the Emirates. I was at this game. Martin Erdegaard is a delight he is just <laughs> so good now Arsenal were a little bit not lucky lucky would be incredibly unfair they were the, don't, don't 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 be bitter no 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 they were the better side we were be <laughs> beaten by the better side 100% and, and Arsenal were very very good at times but they then do score a deflection and a goal that I think should be ruled out for off uh, for handball um, we know, Where, where's the handball there's no handball it is there. Gabriel hits it with his arm as it comes off the keeper no, no, um, no, no, but anyway you're clutching the straws anyway we were beaten by a better side and I was not too mad about this to be honest because it, it was very much at Arsenal on top for most of this game but I was just so impressed with Edgard. He is, you know, a glorious footballer. And the way that he kind of drives the team forward, his his movement, his vision, his execution in the flesh, Jenny was just stunned by what a player he is. Yeah, he's absolutely delightful to watch. I think I kind of remember when Arsenal signed him on a permanent deal last season. There were still a couple of members of the fan base who were a little bit unconvinced. But obviously, I think he's still only 22, 23 now. So he obviously had room to grow. And over the course of that season, especially in the final six months, you kind of just saw him deliver more, deliver more, deliver more. And the fact that he's been named captain tells you what he's given off the pitch as well as on it. But then in terms of the actual game on Saturday, all, all you need to do is just say that step over for that goal. It's just a phenomenal piece of skill that there are only few people in the world capable of doing it. I just think he's a really stylish footballer to watch as well. Yeah. It's just so he's great. Very he's very tidy, isn't he? Yeah, a little bit similar to, to what I was saying about Thiago Alcantara. I love those players who are just so silky, very nice touches, 
really deceptive with their their footwork and how they kind of trick defenders and, and midfielders and, and kind of escape them. And Odegaard definitely falls into that category. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see what kind of goals and assist numbers he gets at the end of the season. Because I definitely think he's capable of getting double figures in both. And if he does, then you're looking at potentially one of the, maybe in the next two, three years, one of the best central attacking midfielders in the Premier League. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Completely agree. Uh, West Ham finally got a win. They beat Aston Villa 1-0, but it was another unconvincing performance, to be honest, from the Hammers. They they, <laughs> they were quite poor for large swathes of this game, I thought. Um, but the points are on the board, so they're, they're, finally, they're finally away. I'm sure that'll be speaking of, um Speaking of XG, I think in this game it was 0.37 and 0.34 for both teams. Yeah, it wasn't a great so game. That, that, it? No, it wasn't, that, that's, that's definitely going to be uh, a raise from the history books. Yeah, yeah, one we don't need to think about, but West Ham will be delighted that they actually have some points on the right, board. But, and they but, scored a goal. They scored a goal. It's, uh, it's all very exciting. I, I was, I was going to say, you say we don't need to talk about it, but again, it's Aston Villa still not, not really convincing. Yeah, um, there yeah, was kind yeah. of a little talk after the game about how Ings ended up on the, the left wing a lot, crossing into the box. And what you're doing with a striker like Danny Ings crossing when he should be the one in the in, in yep. the box doesn't really make much sense to me. And I've always felt a little bit uneasy about the balance of Villa squad. I was never that convinced when they bought Coutinho because they already had Buendia who likes to play in very similar spaces and has a similar role, although he's, you know, what, nine, ten years younger. So I never really made that much sense to me. Yeah. And I still don't think they're they quite really know what they're doing with their transfers. Obviously, to get players of Coutinho and Diego Carlos' calibre is great, but do they actually fit into what you're over, trying to achieve overall? I'm not too sure. And I think we're potentially seeing the, the ramifications of that at the moment where they just look a little bit disjointed and it feels like a little bit of a, a mishmash. Yeah, I mean, look, Gerald, I think he's on some shaky ground. Now, obviously, he's very good friends with mm. Christian Perslow and, and that will give him some time. He's, he's been backed publicly by the board. But it does feel like this side are, are, are lacking a bit of an identity at the moment, and I, I don't mm -hmm. know what they're trying to do, which is quite, um, which is quite difficult, isn't it? Yeah, that, I think you, the fact you just said identity—that's a great way of putting it. Um, and yeah, definitely on on shaky ground. And I, yeah, he's been backed by the board, but we, we we've seen that happen so yeah. many times over the years. Kiss, years. Of, de it's, kiss uh, of death in so many ways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing. It's nothing to tickling onto. But I think. From the outside looking in, I think the most frustrating thing about it is that Gerard did such great work with Rangers. We were all really excited to see what he'd do with an Aston Villa team who it felt like there was a lot of untapped potential there and they could kind of kick on and, and maybe not go into the top six, but, you know, maybe yeah, do a little bit of, of Europe, Leicester. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly that. You know, aim maybe for the Europa League or the Europa Conference League. So the fact that they've not even remotely come close to convincing and Gerard's been there for, what, maybe 10 months now. Yeah starting to think well what's kind of going on there yeah how's this how's this one play out absolutely 100 mm. um finally the premier league 10 man chelsea saw off leicester city 2-1 with a double from raheem sterling nice to see raheem get off the mark uh, even in the wrong colors of west london but uh conor gallagher got himself sent <laughs> off with a really silly double booking I suppose there's a question here. Does he have a future at the bridge? There's rumours today that Crystal Palace have, have submitted a bid for Conor Gallagher. Um, now, obviously, it was a tough debut against Leeds. It's gone badly mm. again here. Um, it, it's really petulant, I think, this one. It's one of those where you're looking at it going, ah, you didn't. You had no need to do that. The first mm. one, the first one's a bit of a sort of standard chug back. Yeah, okay, fine, book me. Um, and then the second one, it's almost like he's forgotten he's on a booking. And you're like, oh... And yeah, you, know, you see kind of the realization dawn in his face as soon as he's done it. You're like, I'm, I'm going on, I'm off. And there's nothing you could say about either of them. It's, it's definitely a red card. Um, but equally, you're looking at this and going, does he need more time, or is this just a, a sign of a player that's not quite up to the level? It's a tricky one, and I, I really feel for him a little bit because obviously he's been out on on loan quite a couple of times over the years. You know, he's been at Charlton before, Swansea, obviously Crystal Palace last year did really well, and it felt like this was his moment. So to have been given the trust by Tuchel to kind of come into the starting eleven, and obviously no one impressed against Leeds, but to, to not kind of stand out in that game and then to get sent off so early on in this game, that can be make or break for a player at a particular club. Yeah. Because Tuchel might look at that and think, well, I can't really trust you. And for me, that second yellow card um, is very naive and it screams of someone who is trying so hard to impress 
um, that they've just got too carried away. They, they, that's what it just looked like to me. Yeah. Looked like a young player. I think Gallagher's only 22, 23 yeah, years yeah. old. Who's thinking? I'm desperate. To, you know, my the the team I've grown up supporting, the team I've you know I've kind of risen through their academy ranks. I finally got my chance, and he's just been too over eager. And obviously, because it was two yellows, he'll only miss one game. But you just fear that when he's available again, Tuchel's going to say, "Well, I can't trust you yeah, now," yeah. because in the two the two games I've given you, you've you've not shown me anything, and that, and and that's what I worry for him because he's shown that he's got got the talent to to kind of be be given a shot, but he's he's potentially blown it after two games. I'm sure he hasn't, but that's that, that's what I kind of fear a little. Well, bit. so one the question I suppose is whether they just take a bid, do they accept a bid for him over the next couple of days, and that would be that would be the kind of nail of it. But yeah, I think look, he's he's definitely got the ability. Um, he's maybe lucky in a little bit that there's a midweek game this week that he misses, so that he is actually back in contention for next Saturday's game. Mm-hmm. It's not a two week turnaround. Um, so yeah, I mean, let's see how it plays out with Conor Gallagher. But all the talent in the world, and as you say, maybe just trying to weave it too hard. Um, to, to make his mark, and you know, I can you can, you can sympathise with that. I think is uh, more than anything else. He's probably got quite a big decision to make, and I, I only just thought of it just then when you were chatting. But we've got a World Cup coming up, mm-hmm. and he's been in and around that England squad, and he's got a really tough decision to make there because yes, he can stay and try and crack into that Chelsea Chelsea starting eleven. He's already kind of on the back foot now after these first two appearances. But if Crystal Palace had made a bid for him, maybe he looks at it in terms of the World Cup and says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm desperate to play. What's going to be the best best place for me? You know, maybe on the periphery at Chelsea or do I be bold and, and go to Crystal Palace and now I'm potentially going to be be the main man there? Yeah. That's that's a hell of a dilemma. Yeah, yeah. No, not one I'd want to be making. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's, I suppose they're good options in some ways for him. You know, to be wanted and, and desired by two clubs uh, is a good thing. And I'm sure that Chelsea will be saying, look, you're not going to get that many more minutes for them than, or, or that many more games, which we say, maybe not minutes, games for them mm-hmm. than you are with us because, you know, you are part of our midfield rotation, which means you're mostly going to play. You know, th- there is going to be chances for you either off the bench or as a starter with, with the amount of rotation and the, the lack of kind of depth that they have in the middle. So I imagine they'll be kind of peddling that line while uh, when, when they trying to keep him but we shall see um let's finally go to france where psg dropped points for the first time this season <laughs> after a one all draw with monaco uh, you know what monaco really good put up a really good fight against the champions uh, and turned around what had been a really difficult start for them it's a really funny game right um Vitinha didn't play for psg and his absence was really quite telling and renato sanchez played and i love him but could not deal at all uh, with Fafana, who, you know, ran the game in the middle of the park, I thought, for uh, for Monaco. I thought he was absolutely excellent use of Fafana. Um, and then, you know, you get to the other end, there's a couple of things. You know, there, there are chances for PSG. Mbappe is a little bit profligate. Um, but a really good performance from Monaco, who, um, yeah, had struggled a little bit at the start of the season. So uh, nice for them to, to start turning things around. Um, and Marseille romped past Nice, who were really struggling, really struggling. Keep an eye on Nice. They are not well. Um, with a brace from new boy Alexis Sanchez, proving the difference from Marseille. There was about f- He's back. There was He's about back. 50 ex-Arsenal <laughs> players on the pitch in this game. You know, like Alexis <laughs> there, you know, Aaron Ramsey was there, Kalasadac, uh, Gendouzi. Yeah, everyone. And, and of course, uh, Tavares, who's on loan from Arsenal. He notched his third goal for Marseille as well. He's their top scorer from fullback. So, uh, <laughs> you know, one, one for there. The Arsenal-Marseille link continues. Um, and with that, I think it's time for us to call it a day here on the Athletic Soccer Show. We hope you've enjoyed our roundup of the big stories across Europe for this weekend. Uh, and all this stuff. And all that's left for me to do is say thank you to all of you for listening. Thank you so much to Jay Harris. Yeah, thanks guys for putting up with me. I think uh, I'm still feeling the after effects of, of yesterday and not an ill carnival. So much appreciated as always, everyone, for tuning in. Well, to be fair, mate, it's not as bad as my voice was last week. So, uh, so we're, <laughs> we're all winners today. I've been Jack Collins. This has been your weekend review and we will see you next week. Thanks for tuning in.